Hey y'all, it's Danielle, and welcome to episode 20 of Ain't No Free Lunch. This is our last episode made in the magical month of February for Black History Month. And while we celebrate 365 Black here, we also got a stunt for the best month of the year. This week, we talk the egregious banning of certain news outlets from the White House press gaggle and go deep into the new Oscar-nominated documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. Wow, James Baldwin was a profound and an amazing man indeed. All right, let's go. How's your week? It's Friday. I'm so happy that it's Friday. So you feeling better now? I am. I was sick for a while. I had a sinus infection and it was the worst. Mm -hmm. I never missed school and I could not make it to school that day. Like I just had, oh, it was the worst. How are you? Oh, so are you going to tell our listeners your good news that you've been like keeping away from them for a few weeks now? Um, probably for probably closer to a few months. <laughs> yeah. So, right. It's kind of weird to say it, actually, because I haven't really been saying it. But I actually turned in my official letter of re- resignation to my job. Um, I. Why? I am going back to pursue a doctor of philosophy in curriculum and instruction, education, uh, that area. So She's going to have all the money. <laughs> That's the hope <laughs> and the plan. Hopping I mean, those DMs. It's been a very emotional thing. I, I think the day that I decided that I was going to actually apply to school, I went and I got in my car and I cried like a little baby. I'm going to miss my kids so much. Well, and my athletes, hopefully your kids were going to move on the next year so they wouldn't actually have you anyway. Right. Which honestly, I just realized I haven't told my kids I'm not coming back. And some of them listen to this podcast. Surprise. (laughs) No, I'm going to before we put it out, I definitely will have to make that as a general announcement (laughs) so that they don't figure it out through this podcast. But it is some. It's a new venture. I'm going to be moving out of the state of Virginia. I've never lived outside of Virginia, so I'm a little bit. I'm nervous. I'm actually a lot nervous. And so you're going to tell us where you're going or what? I don't know where I'm going yet. So let me tell. Let me oh tell you goodness, this. Here we go. So Danielle has been accepted to Stanford, the University of Maryland, the Michigan State University. The University of Texas. At Austin. At Austin. UC Davis. UC San Diego. UC San Diego. So let me tell you something. We've been kind of joking about this. A lot of these schools have had like high profile incidents there. They have. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I told Danielle, I was like, uh, do you really want to go to Stanford with Brock Turner? Uh, and then like the day she texted me and said oh i just got into texas so it's almost like in every other day thing like she just casually just texts me and said oh i just got into the school today <laughs> and so when she got into the university of texas i was like abby fisher right He's abby fisher me. said that you just got in because you're black <laughs> affirmative action no it's gonna be a really hard decision and so I think a lot of different people have a lot of different opinions about where I should go and what I should do. And I'm still waiting on a couple more places to let me know 
where I stand and I'm looking at different funding packages. So I don't know. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be exciting. I'm just sad that we won't probably be able to really record in person. We need to get our recording game up. I'll take trips. Take trips to where? Wherever you're in school. I mean, that works out. But I'm just saying. I mean, not all the time. That's what I'm saying. Not all the time. We got to step our game up. Once a semester or something. So with that, we are accepting donations so that we can have a better sound system for when we are apart. Because we will probably come. I think I'm moving in July is probably around the time that I'll be leaving the country. The country. Oh, my gosh. Leaving the state. Uh, for another part of the country. So if you want to donate to make sure that our quality, our sound quality is top notch, we would totally appreciate it, you know, as a, a form of independent media. You know, I like to think of ourselves as the independent press. Let me preface this by saying that I'm looking for a new co-host. He is trifling and disrespectful. Since, since trifling she, and disrespectful. Since she's deciding to leave and everything, I'm looking for a new co-host. You're definitely not. Send definitely applications not. to me at ain't no free lunch at gmail.com. I'm, I managed the email account. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you did change your password on me yesterday. <laughs> I definitely did. But, yeah, independent press. Yeah, um, that's us. I'm proud of that. I feel like. The mm. guy that's posing as president. Oh, you mean like the Republican leader, Donald? Whatever. <laughs> I mean, what's up with him like banning people from coming to a press conference? And and the crazy thing about it is, is okay, so I think, was it Sean Spicer who announced who would be yes. banned? Yes. And they have, you know, they have the White House gaggle. It comes out, you've got the national press secretary, they're banning New York Times. They're banning uh, mm, CNN, Political, the uh, the LA Times, but Breitbart. Breitbart isn't fake news to them. Breitbart is not fake news to them, even though they very much so promote, you know, white supremacist viewpoints. What about what about your boy Milo? I don't. I just he he got fired. Did you see he got fired? He did. He did he get fired from Breitbart? I know he lost his book publishing, like his his contract, which to me is a problem. It's like it's all problematic because, you know, he made those comments about under a underage Have rape, yeah. like rape of and I don't want to even say underage sex, because if it's non-consensual, then at that point it's rape and made it seem like it was OK. And he's made those comments numerous of times, like numbers of times. And it's been out there. It's just that it was been made public. But all of the racist, sexist, Islamophobic, neo-Nazi-esque type things that he said up until this point was not a deal breaker for the publishing company. That, to me, those should all be deal breakers. But then everyone wants to act surprised when he decides that he wants to basically advocate for underage... Pedophilia. Pedophilia, yeah. Saying that not sometimes the boys are the aggressor. What? What? Yeah, you know, I think we had this conversation up here before about Chris Brown mm, being we? a victim, but him not realizing that he was a victim. Oh, yeah, we did. We did talk about that. I remember that. Uh, and I, actually, I think it might have been the Brock Turner episode. It was the Brock Turner episode. But episode with, two. Go check it in the archives. With Milo, it's just... Super interesting that he is so condescending. Nasty. And 
vow to members of the LGBTQ community. But I mean, he's an openly gay man. He is. He he definitely is. He says a lot of trans. He has a lot of transphobic comments that he's made. But the thing about it is something that I'm learning is, and I literally, when I say I'm learning, I'm just now learning this. Is I'm trying to educate myself. A lot of trans issues are not things that are faced by other LGB members or people on that spectrum because they identify as cis and not trans. And so it, I think it's something that he just, it's just something else for him to be ignorant about. Any, anything that he feels that he can get attention from saying, he'll do it. He'll be inflammatory. But the people that he, he was, you know, he was a part of Breitbart News. They're not banned from the White House press right. conference. And I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous that other members of the press are so slow to say, this is out of control. Sure. You, you know, the funny thing about that is so last week, like related, but a little bit unrelated last weekend, last Saturday, I went to the Social Justice in Action Summit along with university. Mm -hmm. That was my first time ever participating in it. It was dynamic. And actually one of the like one of the keynote speakers um, facilitators, she went to undergrad with me. At UNC? I, yeah. I had no idea that she was going to be there. She had no idea that I was going to be there. Just got invited. I said, yeah, sure. And uh, she quoted the great philosopher 2 Chain, <laughs> <laughs> And she said, whenever you, whenever you hear something that you like today, I just want you to echo what the great philosopher 2 Chains himself says. True. <laughs> And so throughout the whole summit, you would just randomly hear people saying, true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I definitely echo the things that you say about Milo and about Breitbart, as well as about how the national press secretary. Oh, he's disgusting. Who is literally a puppet mm -hmm. for the man posing as president. Completely agree. But like how they get preferential treatment. Like I don't think I've ever seen another president be as partial to a news organization. It's and I mean that's the thing that I'm I'm learning is that this is where I'm like this is where we're leading into things like fascism. You know? He sure. he wants media that positively reflects himself. And we know what Putin does to media that does not reflect things that he agrees with. Right. Like they disappear. Uh, like literally. And I feel like this is how it started. And so I just definitely want to shout out Time and the Associated Press because they boycotted the White House gaggle today because of the fact that they these credentialed news outlets were not permitted in. What do you what are you doing? Like punishing a, a spoiled child? So they publish things about you that you don't like. That doesn't mean you don't give them access to information. There's no journalistic integrity there. None. There's none. And for me, those people who are or, you know, those news outlets that are permitted inside of this space should be asking, what am I doing wrong? You know what I'm saying? Obviously, they like what we're reporting. Yeah. What what part of the resistance are you? And I know, you know, the news is not supposed to be partial. Man, let's be real. They are all subjective. Right. But the, at the end of the day, if you want people to have 
to take you seriously, to feel like you have integrity. You need to give us free act. I mean, freedom of the press is one of the fundamental like earmarks of the United States of America. That's it is why we have so many other freedoms, access to information. So because you don't like the fact that they report something about you that you don't that you're not fond of or they port in a way you can't just call things you don't like fake it doesn't work like that are you sure about that i'm positive about that i can't say because i don't like raspberry cheesecake it's fake cake it's fake cheesecake i don't like it it's not pleasing to me it doesn't even make sense yeah, you know, it kind of takes me back to that line in Hidden Figures where Mary Jackson said that like every time we get close to the finish line, they they move the finish line. Absolutely. It's like whenever something isn't pleasing to this administration, they find some new and innovative way to alter like what we see, which is another tenet of fascism. Absolutely. Like, what you see, you like you don't see what you really think you see. And that started on the first day of this administration, January 20th, I had the largest. Which was so false. <laughs> yeah, it's asinine, ludicrous, preposterous. At but, all of the above, yeah. plus more. I just, for me, I see the tenets of our democracy crumbling. And no, it's not perfect. And no, I have so many different complaints. But... There are things that allow us to move freely in this country, and one of those is freedom of the press. A boy's born in hot damn Mississippi, surrounded by four walls that ain't so pretty. His parents give him love and affection to keep him strong. Moving in the right direction, living just enough, just enough for the city. So you went to the movies today? I hear you went to the movies. And I say I hear because you <laughs> you told me. Yeah, I, I slid over to the matinee. So just a little bit about me, listeners. So I go to the matinee movies by myself. I go to the movies by myself all the time. I'm a movie nut. If I know something in the movie, I go by. Oh, because I go to the movies so much that I know that if you go on Tuesdays, it's $6 a ticket and you get a $5 large bucket of popcorn. Why do you need a large bucket of popcorn? Because I bring it back home and put them in little baggies and then eat them later. That's lunch. Oh. <laughs> And it's $5. Who doesn't want $5 large bucket of popcorn? Interesting. Yeah, so, of course, my movie theater did not have... Nope. I am not your Negro. If any white man in the world says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad nigga so there won't be any more like him. I, I am not your Negro. So I had to travel 72 miles east to watch this documentary. Groundbreaking I, documentary. I don't know if it was groundbreaking. 
What? But that was narrated by the voice of God, Samuel L. Jackson. No, actually, that's Morgan Freeman. Oh yeah, same thing. No, it's not. <laughs> but you know, actually, before we kind of get into it, Morgan, uh, not Morgan, Samuel L. Jackson. When I was watching the film, the documentary, like I closed my eyes, and I. This is probably how Baldwin would have. He probably narrated in a much similar form, like the tone, the cadence. I I think it was done well for sure. It was. I thought it was done incredibly well. It's actually up for a feature documentary nominee. It's a feature documentary nominee for the Oscars, and actually, I think there are two other um nominees in documentary film for for the oscars by black directors so the other two are 13th which was the documentary about the private prison system and all of those things and the 13th amendment which i think is incredibly relevant right now since jeff sessions has just side note like let's just really quickly let's divert really quickly okay why are you giving me that uh Last weekend, during the summit, I got a call from a criminal defense attorney that said, hey, where are you? I was like, I'm at Longwood. He said, run down here to the courthouse real quick. I want you to see something. So there was a Confederate flag rally in front of the courthouse. There's always one across the street from where I live, Tuesdays and Fridays. And so standing out there, just observing, observing people tooting their horn, saying, make America great again when they rode by observing people give them the bird and finally uh two of the gentlemen decided to come over and i guess they were going to see what we were looking at and so they uh they said can i interest you in a in a constitution <coughs> i said uh no bud i'm good <laughs> and he said have you ever read the constitution actually i have well wonderful wonderful i said can you tell me what the 13th amendment says Oh, I haven't read that one. (laughs) (laughs) And so we proceeded, that criminal defense attorney, Hakeem Kroom and myself, we proceeded to uh, read them, not literally, but we read them about the 13th Amendment and, and how it's pertinent today. But so, you know, we aren't just doing this behind the microphone. We about that life. But carry on. Well, what I was ex- what I was saying was Jeff Sessions just recently took I, I think he, he like backtracked on some legislation, not legislation, but just an order by President Barack Obama to slow the growth of private prisons. And so I think that's incredibly relevant. And As what Jeff and the uh, Department of Justice in this administration also rescinded the federal protection for um, transgender bathroom usage. Right, right. Which in is, public schools. They said it's a state issue. It's stressful what it is. It's a human rights issue, but let's move on before we go down that, that you know, that avenue. But then the other is, I think it's OJ. Um, is it the is it the people versus OJ or is it OJ made? In, it's one of the OJ Simpson the movies. The people versus OJ. Right. It, so, no, it, it was a docu-series. Right, so that's also FX. that's also up for a Oscar, right? Right, I believe so. It's up for an Oscar, and there's another one that's called Life Animated, which is by a black director, but it's not. It's the only one of 
the the nominees that is not dealing with issues of race and racism. So I went to go see I Am Not Your Negro the first weekend it opened in Richmond, which was, I guess, last weekend. Sure. And I'm going to be really honest. I hope you're always really honest. I know. I'm just saying I'm going to be exceptionally honest right now. I hope you're always exceptionally honest. I, I'm always honest with the, oh with my, the listeners. Oh, my goodness. No, you're not. CC last episode, episode 19, <laughs> natural hair. But we'll come back to that at another time. I love natural hair. Anyway, so when I first started watching the movie, this is I really need to see it again. Because I was at first I was lost. I was like, what am I watching? You lost? I was <laughs> what is happening? And it took me a minute because I guess I'm so used to going to movies and immediately being thrown into plot. And it wasn't a movie that like had a plot. It wasn't a movie that had rising and falling action, you know, the things that we're used to to seeing. Basically, the setup of the movie, if you're not familiar with what it is, it's a unfinished manuscript um, called Remember This House that was written by James Baldwin. Yeah, and is, he only wrote 30 pages. Yeah, he only wrote 30 pages of it and he never finished it. And so given the way that, you know, books, you, most books are more than 30 pages. So it's kind of like just the beginning stages, I felt like, of him writing the book. They included letters of him to the publisher saying, hey, this is something that I'm planning on doing. This is why I'm planning on doing it. And he even goes so far as to say, like, I'm going to do it whether you want to sign on or not. I'm just letting you I'm giving you the courtesy to let you know that this is what's popping off. Yeah. And so the book was supposed to be about like his relationship with three of his friends who were all assassinated within five years. Right. Medgar Evers, Malcolm, Mal X. Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. And even within it, I don't, I don't know. It was just, I know that they are civil rights leaders and they're coming from the same amount of time, but I never, it never crossed my mind that these people were interacting and intersecting with each other in certain ways, especially because once I learned that Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, they, what, they only met one time, if I'm correct. I think it may have been twice, but one of those times was in Selma. Right. And so for me, I just saw them as like completely individual people. Like I had learned about Medgar Evers and I do you learn about them so separately and not as intertwined. And it was just really interesting to me to see James Baldwin be, you know, the connector. Yeah, like that commonality between them all. Right. And yeah, so because that was great. Because we have been conditioned to believe that they were essentially fighting for separate movements. And that was one thing I really appreciated in the film. Uh, Baldwin explained that at the end of their lives, specifically at the end of Malcolm's life, they were essentially like working together. After he made the trip to the Mecca, right? they were essentially working together. And then he went so far as to say, Martin began to carry the torch from Malcolm. Like he, he almost made it his personal mission to finish Malcolm's work, which was interesting. I never heard someone justified in that manner. Right. One of the things that was shocking to me was he said, none of them made it to see 40 years old. Yeah. Which, whoa. 
Yeah. And you I, know I mean, that. Especially, especially since she's starting to push 30. It's like 40 ain't that, ain't that it's, bad. It's not that old. <laughs> and yeah, Jay-Z said 40 to new 30. Yeah, it, it's not that old. And so, you know, when I was younger and I was learning about these people and I heard they died, I was like, these grown, grown men, you know? And I mean, they were, but at the same time, like him talking about Martin at age 26 leading entire movements I was in there like, I'm 26. <laughs> right. I need to get, kind of get this together. But I also appreciated how he designated himself as an observer. That was one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah. So our goal tonight is to like, we are encouraging you all to go watch the movie. Please go watch this movie. But we have no intention of like telling you the plot. You should totally tell them the plot. I don't think so. Like, let's encourage them to go because I've been observing some things on social media, and so many people have no clue who James Baldwin is. Like, so many people that I know, like my Facebook friends, have no clue who James Baldwin is. Actually, I have a friend who's a nurse in Richmond. She calls herself Nurse Petty, and she was joking on Facebook the other day and said that. If a man does not know who James Baldwin is, she can't date him because no, she, that's real. B- because she was trying to get that's this, extra real. She, extra. She was trying to get this guy to to go out with her to watch the the film this past weekend. He was like, "Who is James Baldwin? Like, why is this important?" She said she deleted this information. <laughs> I feel like I mean, she's still I I still want to educate people about it, but I I feel like. There has to be some type of complex discussion of the plot. I mean, there I mean, there wasn't a plot. That was the whole thing. It's just a discussion of... Uh, there's nothing that I feel like that we can say that is going to ruin this movie. You have to go Hold see on. it for yourself. So, while watching the movie, really early on, something that stood out to me, it just... It seemed as if... Like, I, I saw a parallel between Nina Simone and... James Baldwin. I think I know where you're heading with this, but I'm gonna let you. Uh, I'm gonna let you elaborate. And I think the one of the big things was that they both went to Europe to find like peace. Right at the very beginning, he's talking about how he is never missed like America because he's in Paris. Right, and now he's returning to America. Part of the reason why he said it is to observe, to yeah. to, to bear witness. And, and and his whole argument was essentially like, you don't, I'm not going to be that person that's going to lead a march, basically. Right. But, but I'm going to use my, my talents to lead people however I can. Which I think is important because I think that was something we talked about a while back when we, maybe when we were talking about the Resist episode. Probably. And. Like, use the talents that you have. Right, use and the talents that you have. We even talked about that, about privilege. Like, right. Um, you know, how can, how can people that aren't people of color be allies? And, you know, one of the right. ways they can be an ally is to use the privilege they have. But, I think it was just really, really interesting to me because, of course, he was talking about the strained relationship between the French and the Algerians, right? Right, because that's incredibly important to French history. It, well, it's it's important, not just in French. Well, that was something else he said. It was like, history isn't something that's in the past. It's like something that's current. It's always current. You carry your past with you. Right. That's what makes us who we are. But, yeah, it was really interesting 
how in light of all the issues that in Europe we have with race relations, right? Mm-hmm. They still found so much more peace there. Like they were more widely accepted there than they were at home. And I think part of that is because at that time he wasn't Algerian. You know, you might be, he might've been black, but he was still identified as American. And the anxieties that a lot of people had in French culture, from what I've read and from what I've looked up, were towards Algerians. And so there were a lot of people who were able to escape the issues that came up surrounding race in America because they were in a French space and they were first identified, maybe not first identified, but they were strongly identified as American. And then also he he talks about how he got there with no money, but was still able to find his way. Sure. And I think some of that and maybe possibly willingness to be helped is that he came in and there were people who were already there who had already, you know, made that made that transition who were able to help pick him up and move him on along the way. I I don't think that he, that's to say, he was trying to say that like in France, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but I'm just saying for a point of clarification. Make sure you clarify that now. Oh my goodness. I think that he was saying that they had these issues too, but I was outside of those issues. Yeah. So something that you may not, agree with me on this which is perfectly fine which is perfectly normal (laughs) given how much i usually agree with you about things (laughs) but i was a little bit surprised with how his uh sexuality was ignored you know there was one little statement from j edgar hoover Mm -hmm. a man that has a well-documented history of being a member of the LGBTQ community. A closeted member of Uh, being a part of that community. He is so closeted in that he took his, he kind of did witch hunts on that community so as to not, to prove that he was, or to, you know, further distance himself from that community. Right. But I think, so it's, it's almost like, we kind of whitewashed the story a little bit. Like, I think we talked about this previously with Nina Simone, how incredibly disrespectful it was for a filmmaker to identify Bay Zoe Zaldana. Oh my goodness. As Nina Simone. Like, how, how could you cast her as Nina Simone? And Nina, like, a large part of her struggle was with finding acceptance because of her appearance nina simone and so here you know it's kind of like you're separating the message from the messenger and so i think just as much i mean he said it often but just as much as his race was a factor his sexuality was as well you know he was a self-described black queer right and i just found it interesting like i thought that the filmmakers missed an opportunity to really draw parallels between the struggles for people of color and members of the LGBTQ community. I was not surprised that that wasn't something that was highlighted because when I was looking through and I was, you know, standing over reading different things about it, they said that it was going to be 
you know, just the 30 pages. It's going to be based on the 30 pages that he had written for Remember This House. So I'm not saying that I disagree with you. However, if their text that they were using was Remember This House and in that space, he didn't really go into his sexuality. Maybe that's why Raul Peck, Peck didn't you know, go down that line. I'm not saying that it's okay. I'm not saying that it's acceptable because he did a lot in terms of talking about not just black people, but also like the integration and like acceptance of gay and bisexual men. And, and you know, those dynamics are, are shown in some of his writing. But I just think, especially with the political climate we have right now, mm. I thought that there would have been an opportunity and especially considering like the women who started like Black Lives Matter right. are members of the LGBTQ community. I thought this was an opportunity to really, and which was a troubling thing because Black Lives Matter often ignores like victims of like trans right. trans people that are victims of gun violence and hate crimes and et cetera. But I, I thought that that would have been a, a different way to kind of combine these marginalized and disenfranchised communities to say, hey, we can work together to to overcome some things. But, you know, something I did really appreciate about the film was the fact that they included Baldwin's critique of some of the institutions in America. Um, and why he wasn't a member of them. So I think he said the NAACP was um, like an elitist organization. He did say it was elitist, which uh, was Medgar Evers' space. Um, he said that Christian churches didn't um, love everyone equally. Which was Martin Luther King Jr.'s space. He kind and, of like laid them out according to the people that he was going to be talking about. And then Black Panthers, and I think this could also be said for the Nation of Islam. Right. He said that he didn't believe that all white people were devils. Well, he said, you know, Black Panthers and the Nation of Is Islam. I missed that part. Yeah, he said both. That they, which was the Malcolm X space. Right, which was the Malcolm X space. So, But I think that's, that goes into him talking about being observer uh, being an observer he was saying i could not align myself with these organizations because there were certain hypocrisies about them that i could not overlook however he does acknowledge the work that they had done they 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 did and he kind of goes through like you know the order of the deaths <laughs> of the people and how incredibly problematic you know the work that they were doing was needed he didn't always agree with the the organizations that he did them they did them through or the theories or you know I'm not gonna say the theories but the methods through which they did them through but they he did say that that work was needed and I think that that was really really important. I think that having Samuel L. Jackson narrate his words was the most powerful part of it. It was just a narration of the words that he used so you could really see why he felt like an observer why he felt like that was the best space for him and why he didn't join these certain organizations and i think that part of the reason maybe that they did not go deeper into his sexuality is it might not have been a part of those first 
30 pages of the book because the time that they actually did that, that was actually from an FBI report about Baldwin. Right. Those weren't even actually his own words. I'd be interested my, to personally myself sit down and read his 30 pages of Remember This House so I could see for myself. Yeah, so let me ask you this question. What was like the most poignant scene in the film like what what was there like what was there that was just maybe it made you like wander off or think off or think off on a tangent like did you have one of those moments in the movie i think i had a lot of moments like that in the movie where i i was just stunned by how brilliant of a person he was and just the and this is just me being a complete nerd, like the complexity of his sentences and his vocabulary usage. I was sitting on the edge of my seat. But I think one of the most poignant moments for me watching that documentary was him talking at the microphone around his neck. I do not remember where he was specifically, but he was talking about... At the university? It might, Yeah, it might have been at the university, talking about the possibility of having a black president after Bobby Kennedy had said something maybe along 40 years, maybe in 40 years we might have a black president. And then him talking about like what would be needed for that. And then the next scene of Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, like walking, you know, doing their walk there in the inaugural parade, just the, I don't know, just the layering of that in the way that they did that with the scenes, it really cut me to my core. Yeah, this this film was done extremely well. So well. But because it's unlike any other documentary I've ever seen before. Because like there was no one that like they cut to the person and they kind of became like the star almost, like the expert. Like right. this was all him. It was just his words, narration and film. So the scene for me is something that I, I've noticed numerous times. So there were two things, but one of the, one of the things that really stood out to me was when Malcolm X was standing at the chalkboard and he was breaking down like the etymology of Negro mm-hmm. and Necro and Necro. And, right, right, right. But, so it's a picture. Yeah, it's a picture. And Malcolm X, and, and so beside Negro was like subhuman. Right. And so, and then, of course, the etymology, like the history of it. But then, it's like something just came to me and said, this is what, like, I, I, I guess Baldwin's, and maybe I'm inferring this, but Baldwin's whole point was that blackness made you non-human. Like, that was their way of, of eradicating your humanity, which could be the reason why the word Negro was chosen. Right. But that was almost like a justification. Of course, we know like people justified slavery and Jim Crow using the Bible and such. so many different things. But that that was almost like one of the ways that they could have justified in their mind that what they were doing was OK. So that stood out to me. Well, I know this. Anyone who's ever tried to live knows this. So what you say about somebody else, you know, anybody else, reveals you. What I think of you as being is dictated by my own 
necessities, my own psychology, my own um, fears and desires. I'm not describing you when I talk about you. I'm describing me. Now here in this country we've got something called a nigger. It doesn't in such terms, I beg you to remark, exist in any other country in the world. We have invented the nigger. I didn't invent him. White people invented him. I've always known, I had to know by the time I was 17 years old. What you were describing was not me, and what you were afraid of was not me. It had to be something else. You had invented it, so it had to be something you were afraid of, and you invested me with it. Now, that's so. No matter what you've done to me, I can say to you this, and I mean it. I know you can't do any more, and I've got nothing to lose. And I know, and I've always known, you know, and really always, that's part of the agony. I've always known that I'm not a nigger. But if I am not the nigger, and if it's true that your invention reveals you, then who is the nigger? And then when he was on, what was it, the Cadet show, I think? Yes. When the man asked him, like, do you have any hope for the Negro? Uh-huh. And so, like, for me, it was just emphasis on the Negro. And then it took me back to last year when that guy was saying <laughs> the African-Americans. The my African-Americans. My African-American. You know, and so it's just kind of like. Here we are 50, 60 years later, mm. but how, what has really changed? Like, how far have we really come? I think that, one, when I saw that scene, I immediately thought of Kendrick Lamar and his use of the word negus in his most recent album and trying to use that, like, kind of, like, rebranding it. But then also, in terms of, like, what's changed, where are we that draws me immediately to a scene by James Baldwin where he's talking about America doesn't understand or like white people don't understand that like I have black and white heritage in me. Like we are all one people. Everything that you do to me, you are doing to yourself. And so for me, just. Oh, yeah, when he was talking about like you're lynching your own son. Right. You're yeah. let, you know, he was like people, you know, you had slave masters lynching black men, knowing that, the, knowing that they were their children, which to me was like, Oh, mine took me to a spot in underground, which comes back on next week. So I'm really excited about that. <laughs> but so I, I just like we how ain't far free we all free. How, right. How how different is it? And when you look at the statistics and I know professor, there's a professor, Sandy Darity down at Duke, and he wrote this article. Let's refer to that as the school in Durham, please. Oh, um, Duke University. The school um, in Durham. <laughs> who wrote this kind of response to Ta-Nehisi Coates' piece on My President Was Black. I am, and he basically says, according to the numbers – Things have not been getting better for for black people in America. And I think that when you look at it, when you look at the numbers, when you break things down, um, then you'll realize that a lot of the things that people are doing 
are very similar. They're just done in more sinister ways. Like that whole. It's codified. Right. If you look at the myth uh, that black women are the most educated by race and gender. If you actually look at the data, 65% of black people with bachelors are in fact female. Right? Right. That's just the, the you know, comparing with probably 56% of white people, those with bachelor degrees are women. However, when you break it down to the actual number, that comes out to just under 200,000 black women with bachelor's degrees compared to 1.2 million white women with black oh, with bachelor's degrees. So yes, we have we have high rates of attainment. But when you look at the actual number, you can't people are trying to justify and say, well, black women are the most educated by gender and by race. So obviously they don't need any additional help. People like Abby Fisher. Absolutely. They don't there's there's no additional help that's needed. But when you compare the numbers, one point two million white women with bachelor's degrees versus under two hundred thousand black women. Hell yeah, we need the additional help. So Read that number one more time about the num- uh, the percentage of white women with bachelor's degrees. 56% of white people with bachelor's degrees are women. Oh, okay. So slightly more than the percentage of them that voted for Donald Trump. Just slightly. 3%. That's it. So I think that that, I don't know, when you when you look at what Baldwin was saying and saying, what you do to me, you do to yourself, and you need to stop trying to perpetuate these systems that other me from you. It still, it still happens. It still exists. Yeah, so, Nerdgasm. Nerdgasm. What's your favorite Baldwin book? I'm a Richard... I've always been a Richard Wright fan. Like, I, I'm not a Richard Wright fan. I studied him for an eighth grade... Oh, fourth grade project. I did not like him. I've always appreciated his works. I think maybe I need to go back and reread Richard Wright. His works, you know, like um, Native Son, and he had what? Native Black. Son, Native Son, Black Boy, Black Boy. Native Son is one of my favorites. Right, I might have to go back and reread it, but. What's your favorite James Baldwin book? My favorite James Baldwin book would probably be "Go Tell It on the Mountain." I think I really like that, but it's also between that and Giovanni's Room. Mm. And I haven't, I'm not going to profess to be a James Baldwin, you know, expert. I'm not going to profess to be a James Baldwin expert in any way. But I like the semi-autobiographical feel of Go Tell It on the Mountain. Um, I also like... I like The Fire Next Time. I have actually never read The Fire Next Time. Really? Yeah, I've never read it. So... Baldwin essentially questions Christianity. Okay. In light of some of the things that are transpiring around the country. And and you know, like I've been on this this kick recently, like researching some of these things and how so of course Mother Teresa like questioned some of those things. Right. Um and so this month I've been researching like Dr. King. And even though he never explicitly said it, how it almost sounded like in some of his writings, especially, but even in some of his speeches, like 
maybe he questioned some of the tenets of Christianity. He, but he does he does that on Go Tell It on the Mountain because you yeah, know, yeah. I, I mean, I think James Baldwin was probably agnostic, but I, I never saw any. I, I've never really seen him identify with the. Uh, with a religious doctrine. Well, what's really funny about him is that, and it's something that is, you know, that's why I like the semi-autobiographical. The semi-autobiographical novel. Say it slow, no. Oh, my gosh. Um, is be- the Sound reason- it out. The- Auto. Don't get fought. <laughs> bio. Graph. You know what I'm trying to say. Get cold. Anyway. <laughs> I think one of the things that I really loved about it is because there's so many things that when I went back and I researched, I found out that was similar. So the main character, John, goes un- undergoes like a religious wake- awakening in his early teen years. And so did James Baldwin. He became a Pentecostal preacher at age 14. Yeah. Which, to me, when I read his later works, I would have never guessed. But I also, I wanted to say the reason why I like Giovanni's room is because I feel like, I didn't read this until much later, and I feel like the fact that James Baldwin was a black queer man is not something that I was originally introduced to when I first was introduced to James Baldwin. Maybe whoever was introducing him, me to him just omitted that. But in was James, it your dad? No, it was not my dad. <laughs> <laughs> but my dad has given me, you know, readings by James Baldwin and he's read a lot by him. But I just I don't know. Somehow I missed that the first time around with my first introduction to him. And Giovanni's room, when I read it later, has a lot of homosexual and bisexual themes. And I felt like when I was reading it, that was my reintroduction to who Baldwin was and my actual true understanding of him as a full person in a way that a lot of people just say oh he was a he's a writer he was an intellect he was part of you know black resistance where's the part about him being queer I feel like that's important and I feel like that's erasure so that's I think that's why I really like Giovanni's room because it was kind of my first like Oh, I miss this about James Baldwin. Side note, one of the, like, I don't think I've ever mentioned anything to your dad that he hasn't read. It's always like, every My time dad's I a mention a book, nut. he was like, yeah, I read that. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he is like that. He reads a lot. And I, I guess that's where I get it from because there are so many books that I think people try to give me or recommend me and I'm just like it's a great book you I've already read it <laughs> yeah that's why I just I grew up I that's also, why I just Amazon like books to Danielle yeah you do yeah. he just sends them to my door I I feel mm-hmm. like I mean uh, to be fairly honest I grew up the daughter of a principal we had to read books and then write like papers before we could go play outside like five paragraph essay summarization reviews in the summertime before we could go outside so reading was just just what we did i wish i i do need to spend some more time with james Baldwin. but honestly how many books have you read this year this year i don't know oh i'm in the middle of a great book right now we can talk about that later but i think james baldwin and in a lot of ways he's he's intimidating to read 
Mm. He's so smart. And a lot of the things that he says, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I don't catch it the first time around. I have to read his stuff more than once before I I, I get everything. Yeah, I can agree with you on that. So once upon a time, I would just read it and then like try to go back and read it again. Mm-hmm. But now I've really gotten into a habit that, well, you have some of my books and I have some of yours. Mm-hmm. I think we share them. We've shared books. <laughs> I uh, like I highlight things and I take notes while I'm reading it. And so while it may take me a little bit longer to read it because of that, I think I absorb more information. Oh, absolutely. And, and like, I really feel like I have a, an intimate relationship with the writer. Like, at times, and this may sound weird, but at times I almost feel like we're having the conversation together on the pages. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I definitely, anybody, I mean, you you know my books. You've seen my books. I write all through my books. I scratch things out of books. I write definitions of words I don't know. I I curse in my books. I talk to the author. And so when people borrow my books, they're always like, when someone's like, oh, can I borrow this? I'm like, I don't know if you want to, you going to read what the author has to say, but you also going to read what I have to say too. But with James. Yeah, because you're going to hear what I got to say. You're going to hear what I got to say. I'm going to let you finish. But. <laughs> but yeah, so with James Baldwin, I think that sometimes he can be intimidating to read because it does take you, you know, a longer amount of time. And as I've been it's, talking, it's, I've been thinking, dense. I think I've read since 2017 started, I think I've read, read five books. And... I've been, you know, working my way through them, not in the same way that I would with Baldwin. It takes time. Yeah, I finished a Dyson book last night, and maybe we can talk about that in the future, but uh, it's interesting. His letter mm-hmm. to white America. Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard about that. Yeah. I heard about that. So, in closing, we heard the words of Baldwin, right? We did. We and, saw him, which and, was powerful. And I think Baldwin gave us a solution himself 50 years ago. Ain't no free lunch. It's all about solutions. So how do we apply some of these things to today? Right. You know, I mean, I think having conversations or writing your blurbs on social media, all of those things, like there's a time and a place for those. But how can we really get to a point of really applying some of these things in 2017? Oh, before you answer that question, <laughs> something when I was in the movie theater, like it took everything in me not to say true, not to snap my fingers was when Baldwin and Ah, the lady that wrote Raising the Sun. Oh, Lorraine Hansberry. Yes, her name always evades me. But when they turned up turned on, Bobby, up on Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy. Oh my gosh. And, and so, essentially, they had asked, well, pretty much demanded, that the President of the United States escort a black student into a school that was being desegregated. And John F. Kennedy absolutely should have. And he said that it was like... A meaningless like symbol. Yeah, it was like a moral symbol or something. And, uh, yeah, they turned up. It was like, 
what else are you going to do? Like, it's morally irresponsible for you right. not to do this. Right. But yeah, going back to it, like, how can we apply those things today? But I think that's a perfect example. Like, they demanded that things be done. Did John F. Kennedy actually walk a black child into a school? Absolutely not. Yeah, but, oh, side note, the argument was that if someone spits on that child or throws a rock at that child, they're throwing a rock or spitting on the president of the United States. And thereby throwing a rock or spitting on America. Wow. Right. And so I think that they demanded what they they wanted here. And this goes back to like where we are. And in terms of resistance, like people, one of my great friends, Mary Catherine Gavin, she's going to town halls and she's like, these places are lit. People are here and they are angry and they are demanding that things be done. And not only that. We have to make sure that we follow with through with what Baldwin said. History is not history. The past is not the past. We carry what has happened before us on our shoulders. And we should not allow people to brush it off, say get over it, say it's not that big of a deal, or say that it's getting better when actually there's so many different ways where it's not getting better. And I think that it by demanding that, and whether it your space be protests, speeches, writing cooking, whatever. We went down the list before making sure that you make sure that your voice is heard and you make demands. You don't ask, you don't say pretty please because some, for some of us, this things that are happening in this country right now are life and death. And you cannot be polite with your life or other people's lives. I just don't see the, especially when the opposition is proverbially like spitting in your eye. Fight the flight. Right. So, Coop, do you think we ate today? Well, you know, I think I had some popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what just happened. Uh, yeah, uh, that popcorn was good. Yeah, I think everyone needs to go see I Am Not Your Negro. My dad. Hi, daddy. He see he saw it with my mom and like he texted me almost immediately and was like you need to go see it, it's worth every penny. It's a magical experience and I and I also think because Baldwin is so complex, you got to see it twice. Like I'm gonna have to go see it again because I don't think that everything that he said and everything that he intended or even you know the director intended for us to get, I got the first time. He is a profoundly deep individual. Dense. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening.